Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, hopefully you picked up a sheet on the way in of the fifth chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is what we are going to be diving into this morning and just barely scratching the surface. So let's begin with prayer. Our Father, thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you that you have called us to be in your house with your people to receive from you, to receive your word. Lord, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that we would respond to your word by faith and with obedience. Lord, we thank you that you have given us knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And we pray that all we do today would honor him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the topic today is the providence of God. The providence of God, just a minor, little, tiny, little doctrine that isn't very complicated that we should get through in about three or four minutes, right? Well, they gave us six or seven, yeah, it's seven sections in the Westminster Confession, and it follows what chapter? What was the last chapter that we went through? There's chapter four. Creation, there we go. Um, Creation. Providence follows creation uh, because though they're interconnected, they are different, right? God creates and God also rules over his creation. And the doctrine of providence is that government, that rule, that... Um, that omnipotent power by which he works out all things that come to pass in his world. And so um, we, we th- this chapter, chapter 5 of the Confession, is structured in a certain way. Basically, the doctrine is set forth in section 1. And then two to the end are rejecting erroneous inferences that come from number one, right? So that's how this chapter is structured. One is the, the, um, the nugget, the meat, and then two through seven gives us, uh, this is not what that means, and it doesn't, isn't this direction, and so refuting uh, things that people might infer from the statement of God's providence. So, Scripture says this, Psalm 57, 2 says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. That is a statement about God's providence, God's orchestration of the world. He does all things, right? And there are other verses that we would certainly point to. Um, and we'll get to those as we go along. A lot of proof texts in this. I mean, look at, the, look at the number of proof texts throughout this. A um, lot of weighty verses in there. 
So what is God's providence? What is a definition that we could come up with for God's providence? Anybody want to take a crack at that? How would you encapsulate that into a, a uh, manageable definition? Yes. Speak up. A partial crack. He's going to give a partial crack. Triple B. Oh, certainly. Yeah. 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 We'll get, we'll sort of get there. Yeah. Doctrine of Providence. What's your definition? You have to, you're teaching the uh, five, six, seven year old Sunday school class, and they're like, What's Providence? What do you say? Okay. His plan. Okay. That's making too much of a distinction between miracles and all that just everyday stuff. That makes too much of a distinction between those. Um, his plan, uh, aren't his decrees his plan? Right? And so we want to make a distinction between decrees and providence. Okay? Uh, subtle distinction between those, although God's providence is the outworking of his decrees, right? Everything that comes to pass, he has decreed. It has been what he has had in his mind. I mean, we're using all kinds of anthropomorphisms to even come to understand this, right? Uh, it, it is the outworking of his decrees in his creation. Um, what is the catechism? Who, who has the catechism answer memorized? What is God's providence? Does anybody know that? The shorter catechism? The Westminster? God's providence is his most holy, wise, pow powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. His preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Right, so the doctrine of providence is, is it's more than this. It's more than God's total awareness of what is going on. It's more than that. God is totally aware of everything that is happening in the world. He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent, right? He sees everything. He knows. He observes everything he knows uh the contingencies of everything and uh and so he has total awareness of what is going on but it's more than that he's not just a spectator of what's happening he is a governor he is the one who causes all those things to happen as they happen right it's immense power it's power like we can't as creatures, we can barely conceive of this. It's hard for us to multitask like chewing gum and typing. But God is like orchestrating 
every single bit of his creation. He is orchestrating every leaf that falls out there right now and every one of the hairs on my head that's turning gray and every speck of dust that's flying around in the air that you can see if the sun's coming in through the windows. Right? All of that laid out by God's uh, providence. So the, the doctrine of God's providence is, um, is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling power. But so many people object to the doctrine of God's providence, and in, in that case, there are many who will cast God out of this world in order to protect their own sort of theological flavors, right? They actually cast God out of his world that he created and governs and superintends. We'll get to some of those in a minute, but let's read this first section. God, the great creator of all things, right? Tying it back to creation in the previous chapter. Doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Okay, so there's our running, simple, easy to, you know, conceive of definition of providence. It is God, and it covers, it covers three pages because of all the, um, the proofs here. So God created all things, and the deist would say, where does God go at that point? The deists say God created all things, made things work, put in the laws of nature, put in physics, you know, made, made things fall out according to natural laws, and then went and took a nap in some space that God can be in away from the world, distant from the world, and, and allowed things just to work out according to the, the forces of nature and the, the, the natural nature of man. And so this completely blows that deist's view out of the water, right? You, you can't be a deist and hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can't be a deist and hold to the Christian scriptures, okay? Um, on the other hand... There's a different view of, of the causality of all things and how things fall out, and, and who, who would that be? What, what view am I thinking of? What? Open theism is so stupid, I'm not going to talk about it. No, I mean, you do have to deal with the open theists, but open theists just... They just neuter God and then say that in order for God to love us, he has to make us actual free agents who freely choose him because it wouldn't be love, you know what I mean, uh, all that stuff. But, but what, if, if we got deists who say God takes a step back, um, what are some other sort of old views 
of how things come to pass? Chance. Yeah, I mean... Right. Yeah, things happen... Yeah, things happen by random chance, and there's no rhyme or reason. There's no relationship between this and that. There's, um, it, it is purely a world governed by... Um, I don't know, how would you put it? A world governed by what? Nothing. I don't know. That's not what I'm thinking of, but that's a good, yeah, we, we have to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be open theism. Yeah, he's just a he's he's just a weakling who observes things as they come to pass and doesn't have middle knowledge, so doesn't know the contingencies of every decision that could be made. He's not um he's he's not omniscient by any stretch of the the word. So, uh, it it is a it really is a denutering. It is a, a a you know a a novel conception of God. Um, of Almighty God. No, I'm thinking of fatalism. What is fatalism? No, that is not what it is. That may lead to fatality, but that's not what fatalism is. Okay, that's right. But and so, and so, where's God in that? I mean, does a, does a true fatalist have any place for God? Or the gods, or something like that? I, I don't really know, but they believe that there's sort of a, a mechanical necessity to the things that happen. You know, and it's not... It's caused by some force, but it's not caused by a father in heaven who loves his children and who is doing everything in this world for their good. And so it's just a blind, mechanical sort of cause. And that's gnarly, right? That should be gnarly to you. Um, but that is the view, that is the view of, of some religions and some philosophers, they would be, we would call them fatalists. And so they're, th this is all the stuff that they're wrapping up in this doctrine of providence. And we want to be scriptural in this and give God the honor that is due to him. Um, here's a question. And I have, I mean, I have random notes and highlighting and stuff. So I'm organizing this as we go. So, um, so it'll be total chaos ordained by God. <laughs> um, do you have a sense of God in your life? Get to the pastoral question first. This doctrine of providence is pretty heady, but do you have a sense of, God's, of God in your life? Do you, 
God directly involved in your affairs? Do you have that sense? You ought. You ought to have that sense that God is directly involved in your affairs. And it, it comes from this doctrine, right? That, that everything that comes to pass has been ordained by God. It's come out of his will. It's been part of his decree that these things would come to pass. And he, he as a father, as someone who loves, right, who is love, he arranges everything that comes to pass for what purpose? His glory, right? We get that statement in, uh, it's on page 21 of the, of the version I'm looking at here, but at the end of the first statement, it gives us the reason why he does this, why things fall out according to his, his will. And it says, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's his purpose in doing these things. He gets all the glory in the end. There will be no, no man, no power, no, no nothing that can at the end of the ages, at the consummation, consummation of the ages, that can say, I made that happen. Now God... God will take all the glory and he will take all the glory even in all the gnarly, difficult, painful, terrible things that happened. He's the God who brings prosperity and adversity, right? He brings calamity. And, uh, and he has a purpose in even those calamities to bring himself glory. That is hard for us to accept, hard for us to understand fully. But at the end of the ages, when, um, when our, our, the synapses of our brains have been freed up from being clogged with sin, we may have a better concept of, of this awesome sovereign power of God over 9-11, over Hiroshima, Nagasaki, over the Second World War and concentration camps. It's interesting, I was watching a, a, a British um, m uh, murder mystery because English... English uh, TV is a little, just a fractionally better than, and, than American. Although every, every show out of England pushes homosexuality. It, it's unbelievable in the, the weirdest ways. Anyway, threw that in for free. So I'm watching this show, and in the latest one, this, this detective, I like the character, is investigating um, the death of a pastor, right? So I was like, okay, this will be interesting, because they're probably going to mention theology, and it's going to be terrible, right? And, so, and it wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, at least, at least the main detective didn't mock the the Christians, the Christian characters, which I thought was a win. 
But, but the, they, go to the, they go to the man that they suspected first. And, um, and they talk to him and they say, and this man says, you know what the pastor told me? The pastor told me that when my son died in a, a car wreck, that that was God's will. And I couldn't believe he would be so heartless. Right? The pastor told me that that was part of God's will, that my son died there. And that set me off. And so everybody's like, well, that would make me want to kill the pastor, you know? Um, what comfort is there in that? And I was like, oh, brother, okay. <laughs> um, that's the only source of comfort. Right? That it isn't just random, random it isn't just chance, but it's that God has ordained this very painful providence, a difficult providence. You know, and, and of course, um, you know, pastors are always quick to say, you don't, you, you know, if somebody's grieving, you don't lead with that. And I say, no, you do. You have to lead with that. God has done this, and it hurts. It hurts. God has done this, and you're going to cry out to him com your complaints like Job did, and it hurts. But here, here I am watching this, this show, and the doctrine of God's providence you know, comes up as I'm teaching on providence. But I think that is a very common view. Anything bad that happens in this world is not God's providence and not of God, and anything good is God's providence and from God. That is to make God impotent. You take any molecule in the universe away from his sovereign power and direction and he is not God. That molecule is a competitor. Right? And God doesn't have any competitors. He does not have any competitors for his power. And everything that comes to pass, yes, and some of you have experienced terrible things. God was aware. God was orchestrating. And he may in this life show you the good that comes from that. He may not. But um, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um. The Heidelberg Catechism says this about providence. God's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Right? Notice there how it talks about his fatherly hand. That's what we want to remember with providence. We don't think of providence as God's, God being a robot himself, mechanically dispensing these things, that God is sort of the, God wears the, the, the cape of fate and has a necessity that's pushing him to do certain things. No, he's a father, and so everything that falls out comes out of his character as father, that's why we can say along with Romans 8.28, right, that, that it's for our good. 
He's a father who cares. He's a father who's, who's so intimately involved in the affairs of this life and your life that um, he brings about everything that happens. Um, Bavink said this, God is never idle. With divine potency, he is always active in both nature and grace. Providence, therefore, is a positive act, not a giving of permission to exist, but a causing to exist and making and working from moment to moment. Right? It's not God giving permission for things to happen, like building in that distance. It is God making those things happen. It is right there. He is in the act, right? There is no distance between him and the act. There is no, um, there is no comfort in the view, in that view. Um, man, there's so much here. Where do I go next? Let's go back to number one. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. So there are three things. There are creatures, there's people, there are actions, and things. Everything in the world, every created thing. So every, every single bit of creation, God governs, disposes, directs, and upholds. From the greatest even to the least, right? The biggest to the smallest, the greatest to the least, the most uh, glorious, you know, from the sun down to a speck of dust. By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will. That is speaking, uh, that last phrase is speaking of his decrees. Why does something happen? It was by his free and immutable will. Why does something come about in the world? Because God had decreed that in his wise and holy providence and according to the counsel of his will. And then it's all to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. All of his characters. And then we get into what's called the doctrine of concurrence. Anybody give me a quick definition of the doctrine of concurrence? Come on. Come on, Renton. Okay. Good, yeah. I mean, when two things concur, you have concurrence. And so... If you, if you start talking about God's providence, everything happens according to God laying it out and working it into creation. The, the next question is Romans 9. Well, then how can he still find fault? Right? Well, how can he still find fault? If God is, has laid things out as they go, every sin that I commit is because he made me do it. Against my will. No. Now that's usually not how that works. In fact, that's not ever how that works. Right? The 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 doctrine of concurrence is 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 theologians attempt to bring together the doctrine of God's providence and human responsibility. 
How do those fit together? Because Scripture asserts them both. Right? We will be held accountable. We will be judged according to all of our sins. When we sin, it is not God you know, who, who, is, who has dragged us into that sin, kicking and screaming against our will. It was our will that was enacted, and we went that way. Right? And everything that comes to pass comes to pass according to God's will. Okay? And so, um, I'm not afraid to say that there are things in Scripture that we, we simply hold in tension. This, I, I got a lot to say before I get to you. Um, there's, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that there are doctrines we hold in tension. This is one that, because we're finite creatures made of dust, who have never created a world over which we govern it with complete power, we don't understand how this works. But, we would be unbiblical if we didn't assert both things. We are responsible. God is responsible. Right? That's what we're saying in this. And so they get into this a little bit in this, um, in this section. Uh, but, but one thing I want to say before we get into that section is remember who created the world. Who? It's not a trick question. The triune God created the world. Who set up the rules for how the world works? God did, right? He has made a world that works where free agents choose by their own agency what they do, and all of that is decreed by God and comes to pass according to his plan. That's how he's made the world to work. Okay, and so... Um, so we can't weasel out of this. Scripture makes it clear that he, he, he's made a world where we have agency and we're responsible for the decisions we make because we make them freely according to our own will. God never forces the will, right? And God is responsible and makes everything happen that happens, okay? That's the world he's made. And so um, that's the way he's made it to work. Again, we'll study this for 10, 000, the first 40,000 years of our time in the new Jerusalem. We'll, we'll go to God's providence school and we'll just start thinking about history and all these things and all these, and we'll start seeing things that we never saw because of our limited sinful fallen minds, right? And so um, let's read some of these other sections. Although in relation, this is two, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Right? That's what I just explained. He's the first cause. Everything immutably comes from him. And somehow he's worked out his world. Because he's God, he can do things we don't understand. His ways are far above our ways. It still works according to second causes who make choices, real choices, according to their will. Right? I mean, you don't feel forced to eat the next donut by God's decrees, do you? You want to eat the third donut. And you go eat the donut. And you freely chose 
to eat that donut, right? Or, I mean, possibly they, they have put some sort of drug within the Krispy Kremes that makes you go back, and so you're being compelled by something other than your own appetites, but yeah. Um, okay, so there's that. And then three, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. God uses means. God works out his will by other things, right? Like us and the decisions we make and the, 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 a storm that comes on shore and blows down houses, right? He uses means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure, right? Sometimes he uses means, but he doesn't have to use means. He can just make something happen. Did he use means when he, when he made the creation? No, I mean, he, he spoke and there was light, Right? He's not, a, he's not a, a, a remaker. He's the maker of, of everything there is. And, um, and so he can work. A, he's not bound uh, in ways that we're bound. For the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, huge thing, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and whole powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author of or approver of sin. Such simple doctrines, right? I mean, we get this, we feel this. This is, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. Now I have to talk about God being the author, not being the author of sin. How do you do that? I mean, how do you do that? Let's go back. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends even to the first fall. What, what is that saying? Did the fall happen apart from God's will? No. Do, do some people want to say that the fall happened apart from God's will? Why? Yeah, in a sense, they're trying to protect his reputation, but they're also casting him out of the world, which is not really protecting his reputation. Yeah, I mean... Um, there's a, okay, so yeah, it, it extends to the fall, and then it says, and all other sins of angels and men. So the providence of God extends, his laying that out extends even to sin, your sin. And 
not by a bare permission. What does that mean? Not by a bare, a bare permission. What does that mean? That's important. Yeah, I mean, let's keep it to that example. It could be that Scripture said, um, by the hands of wicked men, you crucified the Lord Jesus, and God allowed that to take place and didn't intercede so that it would take place. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, by the predetermined plan of God, Jesus was crucified by wicked men. Right? So Jesus was going to be crucified. In fact, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Right? And so, so um, again, we don't, want to, we don't want to cast God out of the world by our theology unintentionally. Right? Maybe they don't do it intentionally. Maybe those who want to say everything evil is not of God and everything good is of God. But, they're ca- but, but the end result of them is to bifurcate God and un-God God, and then kick him out of the world so that we can understand what's happening in the world better. All for the purpose of, of maybe protecting him from being accused of being the author of sin. So how do we deal with this, he's not the author of sin thing? Well, at this point, we have to turn to the will of man, Okay. Uh, where were we? Four. Um, yeah, not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering, the governing of them, and a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God. <laughs> When we act, what is moving us to act? Our our desires, right? They may be good, they may be sinful, right? Our wills. Our wills. Right? When, When Pharaoh... When Pharaoh's heart was hardened, what did Pharaoh want to do? He wanted to harden his heart. Right? He freely chose to harden his heart. He wanted to harden his heart. When Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he want to do? What had to happen? He would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he want to do? He wanted to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his will. Somehow God, and this is the mind-boggling part of his providence, God rules over it, and yet 
responsibility is still part of the structure of the way he has made his world to work and uh, actions to take place in this world. So that's what it says there, right? Yet so, as the sinfulness there proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author of, or approver of sin. Bavink says this, Satan and evildoers are not so effectively the instruments of God that they do not also act in their own behalf. For we must not suppose that God works in an iniquitous man as if he were a stone or piece of wood. In other words, he's saying God could, could make that, that stone or piece of wood do what he wants it to do, right? He could, he could um, and it would just be uh, a stupid piece of wood without a will that does exactly what God wants it to do, right? He goes on, he says, God works, um, for we must not suppose that God works in an iniquitous man as if he were a stone or a piece of wood, but he uses him as a thinking uh, creature according to the quality of his nature which he has given to him. Thus, when we say that God works in evildoers, that does not prevent them from working also on their own behalf. It is essential to keep this distinction clear if we are to speak faithfully about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? When we say that God works in evildoers, that does not prevent them from working also in their own behalf. That's the scenario I just said. Pharaoh wanted to harden his own heart, and God gave him the nature that moved him to want those things, okay? That's why when the only way we can begin glorifying God is when God gives us what? A new nature. A changed nature. A new will. One that is, it, where it is possible to choose Him and not our sinful de- desires. Alright, how are we doing? Any questions? Oh, I'm out of time. There's so much more. One a week. That's all we're doing. Just wetting your appetite. I'll share this. Uh, Cromwell. Cromwell is famously uh, noted as having said, trust God and keep your powder dry. Gunpowder, right? Trust God and keep your powder dry. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, right? As if everything depends on those, those two things. Um, trust God and keep your powder dry. Bavink put it like this. Um, this honors God's sovereign providential rule and our human responsibility. It confesses final causality while respecting secondary or efficient causality. Right? Second causes. We have to respect second causes. We have to respect the first cause. All right. Um, I'm going to close. I really am out of time. Um, notice this though number five the most wise righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations God leaves them to go into sin 
which they've chosen. He hasn't chosen it for them. He's decreed it, but they've chosen it. And the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against these against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Now that's a helpful doctrine of sovereignty. That even, it, now that is, don't ever say, um, well, I'm going to sin so that grace may abound. Right? The scripture shoots that down. But you will find that God at times will will give you over to your anger. And you'll have a flare-up and you'll do some damage. And the whole purpose of that and God ordaining that was that you might be humbled. And that you might see the wreckage of your previous sins and so that you might fear committing those sins in the future. God does that. God does that as a father who's training his children. And then the last thing I want to share is this. This is from the close of a section in Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics on Providence. And I just found it encouraging, so I'm going to read it to you. Many mysteries and riddles remain in our consideration of providence. But God shines the light of his word over all these enigmas and mysteries, not to solve them, but that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The doctrine of providence is not a philosophical system, but a confession of faith, that notwithstanding appearances, only God by his almighty and everywhere present power preserves and governs all things. This conviction spares us from superficial optimism and presumptuous pessimism alike. We neither deny life's riddles nor wallow in despair. The providence of God encompasses all things, not only the good, but also sin and suffering, sorrow and death. It would be an impoverished faith that only saw God's hand and counsel in momentous, miraculous and good things, but not in the ordinary, the seemingly insignificant and the painful. There is, furthermore, no power in a faith that recommends stoical indifference or fatalistic acquiescence as true godliness. Rather, the almighty and everywhere present power of God makes us grateful when things go well and patient when things go against us, prompts us to rest with childlike submission in the guidance of the Lord, and at the same time arouses us from our inertia to the highest levels of activity. In all circumstances of life, it gives us good confidence in our faithful God and Father that he will provide whatever we need for body and soul, and that he will, be, he will turn to our good whatever adversity he sends us in this sad world, since he is able to do this as Almighty God and desires to do this as a faithful father. That's a beautiful statement. That is a comprehensive view of, of history and providence and causes and second causes and all those things. But all of it both the positive and the negative, both the, the, the good and the bad, the adverse and the blessings is meant to make us love and worship 
the almighty, powerful one in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for ruling over your creation, upholding all things, governing this universe, governing us, governing uh, not just your people, but all people by your common grace. Lord, we're in awe of your power. We are thankful for your power. Uh, we are thankful that nothing, nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world has uh, caught you off guard, has surprised you, or not been for the purpose that you might bless your people. That is what all history is. And so thank you, Father, for the comfort that brings to us. May we believe it. And when blessings and cursings come, may we have minds set upon your providence and so have patience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.